0: Hello. I hope you're doing well. I wanted to share my creative check-in this week. So it's about, it's kind of twofold. It's about the power of letting go and also what happens when you put your work out there. And what brought this on was I got an acting audition this week. And that was cool and new and something that hasn't happened. Well, it has been happening more recently, which is weird. So let me backtrack a little bit. I produced Maria Shriver's podcast, which is great. You should check it out. It's called Meaningful Conversations with Maria Shriver. And the first interview she did was with Rob Lowe. And I had no idea. They're like best friends, which is really cool. And he said something on there that just struck me about creative life. He does a bunch of one-man shows where he directs, produces, writes them himself, and acts in them. And... He said, you know, when when he's talking to young creative people about doing their own projects, the advice he always gives them is, you know, maybe your creative project won't take you crazy far. Like maybe it won't blow up. Like, you know, maybe you won't if you're, for instance, making a one person show, maybe it won't be on Broadway. But the energy of doing something by yourself always brings in more. So that's one part of it. I think it's like the energy of putting something creative out there and and taking that leap of faith to believe in yourself brings a world of abundance of other creative opportunities as well. The other thing is the the part of letting it go. When I moved to LA and was first pursuing acting, I wanted it so badly that my whole self-worth hung in the balance. So if I would get an acting part, I was a good person. If I didn't, I was a bad person. And so whenever you're putting your self-worth in something besides a higher power or a belief in people or a love, like whenever you put your self-worth into something that is tangible, basically like a outcome, any, any outcome-based thing, you're going to, you're going to be sad because that's completely out of your control. So I think that the reason it didn't happen for me was because if it had happened, I couldn't have handled it. So it's just interesting that as I let that go, I mean, it's still something I love. It's something that I, I miss because I just I love storytelling and I love being endowed with the gift of being able to tell a person's story, whether that's in an interview, whether that's through a song, whether that's helping produce an interview, or when it's taking on an acting role. I really always look at roles as taking on a life, like having a life on your hands. And so I have been putting it out there lately, like, you know, I'm missing, I miss acting. And it's weird because it's my agent in Detroit, who I've been with since I was, I think, a junior in college. Probably in the whole first 10 years I was with them, I got three auditions. And in the past couple months, since I started this podcast, I've had three auditions already. It's just interesting. And I found the joy in it again. I prepared me and my boyfriend put the audition on tape this morning, and it was just so joyful. So. The takeaway from this for you is that number one, Rob Lowe is right. When you put out creative work, I do feel like I'm, I'm getting a lot back and that this project is going to the next level. But just by me putting out into the universe that I believe in myself enough to share my own voice, I'm getting so many other creative opportunities. And you will too when you do that with your own creative project. And the other thing is If you're too attached to your creativity, if you're too attached to the outcome of your creativity, you might be pushing it away because I, I believe in God. I don't believe God is going to give me something that I'm not ready to handle. So by letting go of the outcome and just enjoying the journey and enjoying the purpose behind what you're doing, it will come to you. All right. Now let's get to our creative of the week. Our creative of the week is community member Nadia of Nadia Make Some Art. She's an artist and digital illustrator from the Netherlands. And I wanted to share her with you because her drawings make me smile and laugh. They're so honest, bright, and full of life. Another thing about her I admire is she's seeking to make 1,000 pieces of art. Very inspiring. To follow her and her journey, find her on Instagram at Nadia Makes Some Art. Now let's get to the guest. Lindsay McCormick is a sports broadcaster, entrepreneur, and philanthropist known for broadcasting on Showtime, NBC, CBS, ESPN, MTVU, and even doing live events for the Super Bowl. Lindsay's career journey started out with an internship on ESPN, which she parlayed into a full-time on-camera job using an immense amount of creativity, hard work, tenacity, and faith.
1: So I had to create my own contacts, and I knew that there was going to be no better opportunity to do that than at the worldwide leader in sports, ESPN. And so I got there, and on the first day, they told us, There's no way that any of you are going to go from intern to talent. So just get that out of your head. And I thought, okay, that's a challenge. But I thought, okay, that's the approach they're taking here. I have to find a way around this no. Since
0: then, she's done everything from hosting the 2012 NFL Draft for CBS Sports to guest corresponding for Showtime for the Mayweather versus Pacquiao fight. And she even acted opposite Shemar Moore in the movie The Bounce Back. These days, you can see her as a judge and investor on Entrepreneur Elevator Pitch, a TV show on entrepreneur.com where founders get a chance to pitch their ideas to top investors. I wanted to have Lindsay on the show for a couple of reasons. One, because it takes a tremendous amount of creativity to break into any industry where there aren't many people who look like you, especially sports. And she has a really powerful story about the adversity she did experience, which you'll hear about in this interview. And the other reason is that she has one of the most interesting and helpful philosophies I have ever heard surrounding the word no. What it means to her and how chasing no's, as she puts it, has guided her career and enhanced her life. From our conversation, you'll learn tips for breaking into sports broadcasting, how to craft the perfect pitch, how to access your creativity in the middle of a health struggle, how you can let the word no empower you, and why it's better to apologize than to ask for permission. Now here she is, Lindsay McCormick. It takes a lot of creativity to enter a field that is traditionally dominated by people who don't look like you. And so I'm wondering, what are some of the challenges that you've pushed up against as a woman in this field of sports broadcasting? And what your advice would be to other people who are minorities in their fields?
1: I would say, oh gosh, the challenges for me have changed throughout the course of my career. When I first started out, it was building credibility because at that time, 11, 12 years ago, there weren't as many women. I mean, there were a handful, and everyone knew their names. And
0: you look like you're 12, by the way. So that's wild that you started that long ago. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>
1: Must be the natural product. That's right.
0: Toxin-free, honey.
1: <laughs> so when I first started out, the biggest challenge for me, and I knew this was going to be the biggest challenge going into it, was building my credibility. Because at the time, my brother said something that stuck with me, and he said, whenever a female comes on TV and talks about sports, I just mute it. And I oh, thought, God. wow. And my brother's very pro-female, grew up No, he was being women, honest, but, but that's, that's a pretty aggressive statement. It was, and it stuck with me, especially at the beginning of my career to where I thought, I want to work so hard that I'm not being muted by men who don't take women in sports seriously. And so I knew that that was going to be my biggest challenge at the beginning was proving my credibility. So what I did was I looked at the men in the field that currently held the positions that I wanted. And I said, okay, what did they do to get to that spot? And for the majority of men that I was looking up to, they either were writers and built their credibility that way, or they had previously played the sport on a professional level. And I said, okay, I'm not going to be able to do it. Professionally, so I'll take the writing approach. So I got in and wrote for ESPN the magazine, had an NFL column for Esquire, and tried to build my my credibility through writing and radio, which were outlets that kind of took away your physical appearance because, like you said, I I didn't look like everyone else that was in this field currently, and that was the approach I took at the beginning. And I would still go into job interviews kind of towards the beginning of my career, but getting towards the middle of it as well. I would go into job interviews, and the higher-ups would say to me, okay, why should we take you seriously? Prove to us you know sports. And I doubt that they were saying that to men that were coming in, applying for the same positions. Definitely not. And (laughs) so I would go into some of these auditions well over prepared. Asking some of my guy friends that played professionally to borrow their playbooks. So I would come in knowing the offense and just blow it out of the water. But even then, they would say, oh, our audience, you're, you seem too eager. Oh. You seem too eager. How would our audience... How dare you be passionate? Yeah. yeah. How dare you be passionate about your craft? Um, you seem too eager, a little too green. That's what they... they they put the two together. Green and too, and too passionate means you need more experience so that to the point where you're jaded and then you come in and, oh, then, then we'll hire you. So th- there are a few different obstacles.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's some great takeaways from what you just said. One is like be overprepared. Yeah. See what other people have done who have careers that you want to do and kind of find your way toward that track figure out the steps and diversifying, which is something that we're always talking about. Diversifying is so important, but it's also something that people sometimes have a hard time dealing with because it's like, oh, well, why are you just a host? But then when you do these things, when you're a writer, when you're you're an investor, when you're doing all these different fields, which you are in, people also are like, well, what do you really do? So how do you deal with the hypocrisy on both (laughs) levels of that? And just like go toward what's authentic for you and what you know you'll find success in.
1: I think at first there's that trial period where you have to try new things and figure out if you're passionate about it and if you're good at it. I've done stuff that I was passionate about and I wasn't great at it. And that becomes a hobby then. (laughs)
0: How do you know? Like what's the differentiator for you?
1: I mean, I guess everybody has a different scale and sense of what success is to them. From a business standpoint, it's a little bit easier. If you're making money in it, then you're successful, I guess, by some people's terms. Yeah. In terms of broadcasting, I measured my success by if I'm continuing to be hired. If I wasn't getting jobs, then maybe it would be time for me to reevaluate. But I just kept getting hired and I figured, okay, I'm in the right field.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a pretty logical viewpoint <laughs> of it. Uh, we started out with a bang with you, but usually I like to ask somebody – how creativity was viewed in their households growing up? Like how was creativity viewed? How was having big dreams viewed? And how do you think that's affected your path?
1: I feel like it affected my path tremendously. My mom and dad were so good at at nurturing creativity. My mom put me in these little acting classes when I was three years old. She put me in musical theater. I did a lot of the plays in high school. And she would always say to me, just try it once. And as soon as you're not happy or you're not loving it, you can quit. She was a big dancer. So she thought, okay, I'll put her and dance at a young age. And she always said to me, you can quit at any time. And I never wanted to quit. So that kind of became my hobby was ballroom dancing, ballet, contemporary styles of dance. And then over time, you realize, okay, is this going to be my career path? Or is there another direction I have to take? But my, I mean, my mom put me in anything and everything, and my mom would just give us these books, and she wouldn't hear from us for the rest of the the night. We would just go into our rooms and read together. We'd act out stuff. I almost feel like kids th- these days, and I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm getting into my 30s, and then my boyfriend and I have been talking about what point we want to get married and have kids, and so I always am thinking, okay how would I want to foster my children's creativity? Because in this day and age, you see a lot of parents that rely a lot on technology and giving their children iPads. And I'm sure there will be a point where I give my child an iPad because it's been a really rough day. Yeah. So I'm not knocking that by any means. But I'm saying I wish that kids had the same childhood that we did before technology became so prevalent to where we could just go into our doll closet and be creative and come up with these storylines and entertain ourselves and run out in the front yard. Nowadays, I I don't know if... I would want my children playing in the front yard because they could get abducted. I mean, there's a lot of issues now that we didn't have to deal with years ago. That makes me sound really old. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, it's
0: just the world has changed tremendously in a very short amount of time. Like, I'm sure even a couple of the jobs that you're doing now didn't exist like 20 years ago. Like, podcasting wasn't even around. I mean, it started like 10 years ago, but it's really grown in the past five, six years. So it's interesting and it's challenging because you have to kind of think from the future Mm -hmm. when it comes to creativity, when it comes to raising kids, when it comes to everything, we have to learn to be more like visionaries.
1: I always say that if you're not constantly thinking, this is what I tell some of the entrepreneurs, if you're not constantly thinking about innovating and what's next, you're going to end up like Blockbuster, who was a successful business and didn't make it. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't, they tried at the end to follow Netflix. Yeah. But it was too late. Well, they had the option to buy Netflix and they said no, this isn't going to be a big deal. We, we'll just keep with our method that's been working for us and we all saw how that ended.
0: You have to see from the future. So, I I really appreciate that, but you know, there's a lot of people out there who weren't as lucky as you and I had a similar upbringing where like creativity was really invoked in me at a young age. I was also in dance. I wasn't very good at it. I did my own thing in the corner, (laughs) but I loved it. But for a kid that didn't grow up with that kind of encouraging environment and kind of has to foster it on their own, what would be your tips for them and how to start building that foundation in themselves?
1: I would say trying new things would be the most important because kind of that's how it began for me. My mom would put me in these things and put me in these classes. And oh, I did after school art. I mean, there were so many things. Nowadays, there are so many classes that you can take. You can go with a friend. You can go by yourself. You can try a pottery class. Um, things to exercise different sides of your brain and to just see if you're you're good at it. So I would say try new classes. Yeah. Especially in a city such as LA, there's so many opportunities. Yeah, you have to kind of parent yourself too
0: at a certain age, you know? It's like, take care of yourself. Also, I wonder what you learned from your early creative exploits that you now use in your current career.
1: One of the things that I applaud my parents for teaching me is when my mom would tell me no, she would almost encourage me to find a way around that no. So there were some, I mean, there were some things she would tell me no that were for my own safety, and she didn't encourage me to figure out a way to touch Touch the the soap. soap. Because
0: that that was my big no, too.
1: And I kept trying. (laughs) Why? (laughs) But when it came to other things, such as, uh, no, you can't play with your Barbies right now. You have to work on your homework. She would applaud me when I would find creative ways around her no. and. (laughs) I don't know if I would have done that with my children. I would have said, no means no.
0: (laughs) Right. I watched this interview you did with my friend Michael Klaus, Uh and you talked about how you almost like to chase no's now, which I found to be a fascinating statement because I feel like for most people, no is one of the most oppressive words that they can ever hear. So walk me through that a little bit and how we can all be more like you.
1: I, I mean, I don't think I have everything right. No, but I, know I think I know, that but... that's
0: really right. You know, a big part of this podcast is figuring out how to lessen fear's grip on our lives. And if we're not afraid of hearing no, then we're going to be a lot more creative, a lot more able to express ourselves and bolder in our career choices.
1: I think in the entertainment industry, I mean, there's several industries where no is a big part of it. You hear a thousand no's. And by the 10,000th no, you get to where you're either going to quit or you have to view it in a different way if you're going to continue to be optimistic. And I found that if I was optimistic, things happened for me. Whereas if I was more cynical about it, then opportunities wouldn't come as often. So if I just kept that childlike wonder and that, view that anything could happen at any moment in the entertainment industry, and I could get that call and uh, have a broadcasting job, then that's when stuff continued to happen for me. But the second I thought, oh, maybe this isn't for me. And I think everyone goes through a period where they think that. That's when your I mean, our minds are powerful. So that's when my mind would just kind of take on a life of its own. And I, I wouldn't get jobs. But I feel like I learned after the 1,000th no, okay, <laughs> this we have to view this differently. And the way we do that is by viewing it as a challenge. And I kept saying to myself, what is it about this industry in the sports broadcasting world that I love so much? And there were many different things. One in particular that I feel like food and sports are the two things that bring everyone together. And gave me something to talk about with everyone from my garbage man to, <laughs> to my neighbors. But one of the things I realized over time that I loved was a challenge. And that could have stemmed from when I was younger, my parents instilling that way around no in me. But it could also just be, I love a challenge. <laughs> and that it, it was kind of how I viewed no's after a while. You talk a lot
0: about being an optimist, and I
1: think that's really
0: important to pursuing any creative career because you have to be a little bit insane to think that any of us can make a living out of the things that we love, and that insanity is what gets you there. Yeah. If someone is a natural pessimist, what would be your tips as a natural optimist on how to be more like you in that way?
1: Ooh, I mean, I would say in this day and age... You have even more reasons to be an optimist because you have so many more platforms at your disposal. You have the internet. You have I. I. And when I first started out in sports broadcasting, I worked with ESPN.com and hosting their .com shows. And at the time, when I would, I was looking for an agent. They would say to me, "Oh, you just have .com experience." It, it's very di- yeah. It's very <laughs> <laughs> it's very different than TV experience. Now we know that that's not necessarily the case, and that you actually have more viewers on some of the .com platforms. But back then, they didn't see it as the same. But nowadays, I feel like we have all these platforms at our disposal. I always say everyone has a platform in this day and age. I mean, you post one thing, you could have. 10 followers, and you post one thing, and the right person sees it, and it could lead to a massive career.
0: It's true. It's literally the best time ever in the history of humans for creators. So just seize the day, babies. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go back to ESPN, though, because another fascinating thing about you is how much you made out of your internship there. And a lot of people would be in an internship and just like get the coffee and la la da da and I'm just going to do my job and be friendly. And that's great. That's like a great first step. But you took it to the next level and you really made the most of it and parlayed it into the next step in your career. So can you take me through that a little bit and how others can approach their internships like you?
1: So I came out of college during a time when the economy was at its absolute worst. And I knew – okay, this is my, I don't have any connections. Even though my family had a history in sports, it wasn't like my dad was a broadcaster and knew everyone. So and I everything's had things different. Yeah. yeah. So I had to create my own contacts and I knew that there was going to be no better opportunity to do that than at the world wide leader in sports ESPN. And so I got there and on the first day they told us, there's no way that any of you are going to go from intern to talent. So just get that out of your head. And I thought, okay, that's a challenge. Now I have to write your interest. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of piqued my interest. But I thought, okay, that's the approach they're taking here. I have to find a way around this. No. So when I started my internship, that was back before I prioritized health and sleep in my life. So, I would, my hours were from 4 p.m. until 4 a.m. And those hours kind of made it to where the interns wouldn't be able to interact with other people because you were there at night. You got to interact with other interns and your supervisor, but you had to really want it and really go out of your way to be there during the day when all the decision makers were there. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go home at 4 a.m. I'm going to sleep until 8 a.m. for four hours. And then I'm going to go back up to campus when everyone gets in around nine o'clock. And I'm going to set up as many meetings with my ESPN email as possible. And I would meet with everyone and they said, okay, well, what do you want to do? And I said, okay, I either want to be a sports broadcaster or a feature producer, because at that time I knew they didn't want to hear, oh, you want to be talent, because they kept saying there's no way you're going to go from intern to talent. So I would say I just want to I was just trying to figure out a way to keep a foot in the door any way possible. And to me, I thought, okay, feature producing is going to be the way to do that. So I would meet with people in that department. I would meet with talent and get their advice And just set up as many meetings as possible and try to make as many authentic contacts as possible. And when my internship ended, none of the interns got hired because it was such a slow time in the economy. But my email never deactivated. (laughs) And my badge never deactivated. So I could continue to go onto campus And set up these meetings. And I told my parents, I'm moving to Connecticut full-time because that's where ESPN was based. And I'm sure my parents thought I was crazy. They're like, you don't have a job after your internship, so you're moving cross-country for this? And I said, yeah, just trust me. I will have a job. And so they said, "Okay, we trust you at this point. Went out to Connecticut, moved all my stuff there from Auburn, Alabama, where I was attending college. And just continued to go on on the uh, lot every single day and set up meetings until one day my demo reel got passed around from college of the sports broadcasting I was doing during my time at Auburn University. And it got into the right hands. They saw my reel and they brought me in for green screen testing. And sure enough, after being there for two months, setting up meetings, I finally uh, booked my first gig at ESPN.
0: Wow. Okay. So
1: one thing I noticed from your story
0: is you didn't ask if you could do these things. You did that. <laughs> you asked you ask for forgiveness, not permission. Right. How important do you think that is? Because I think a lot of times like the mistakes I've made is I have asked for permission and then it's really held me back. Did you ever get in trouble for setting up all these meetings or using the email past when you were supposed to or did no one ever find out?
1: Now they're probably going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> But And they'll think, wow, she really cared. Once I got my job hosting the online shows, it became known that I was continuing to get on campus. So they deactivated my badge after I had finally had a job. And so my boss had to go and do it the proper way and reactivate my badge. But it wasn't until I had finally gotten a job that that occurred.
0: And another thing I noticed, because I've also been in this situation many times, is you wanted to be on camera, you wanted to be a talent, but you had to kind of like maneuver your way out of that. So by saying you wanted to produce. Yeah. And um, and producing is great. It's a passion for me now, but it was never something I wanted to do. But I think because I went toward that is that's why I am now talent. But I got a lot of pushback when I would tell people I wanted to also host a show. And so... How did you deal with that and like give them enough of what they wanted, like enough of like, oh, I'm so excited to be a producer while also having this other passion and letting them know about it?
1: I think that when you're, I was 20, 21 years old. I think when you've just gotten out of college, you're at this amazing ESPN campus. It wasn't hard. It it wasn't like it was fake enthusiasm. Right. It was honest, authentic. It, enthusiasm I knew that my ultimate goal was to be a broadcaster it wasn't to be a producer but I was just excited about remaining on campus and re- remaining in this environment so I think that kind of maybe maybe I was too eager then I don't know but uh now maybe- you got the job <laughs> so maybe that kind of was what shined through to them
0: yeah your genuine passion for storytelling Yeah. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Well, and that's what I enjoy most about interviewing these players is humanizing them and showing fans a more authentic side of them without their helmets on. And maybe that's what came through when I was going on some of these meetings and talking about feature producing was wanting to tell these stories.
0: Yeah, and you had a great story about when you were trying to get an interview with Kevin Durant. You you said like, hey, my cousin, was it your cousin took a class with him or something?
1: Yeah, at University of Texas.
0: But the thing that struck me about that story is right before your boss is like, you're never going to get the interview with him. So, I mean, again, I guess it's because you you love getting those no's and you chase them and you love to prove the no's wrong. But why do you think it is, I've had that experience with a lot of bosses in this industry, they tend to be so pessimistic and so negative. And it jars me for a minute. How did you just like instantly snap back and just go toward what you wanted?
1: I think it depends on the boss you have. Mm-hmm. For that boss in particular, I've had some incredible bosses. But for that boss in particular, I mean, he would always parade women around the, the studio when I was filming to show me that I could, was easily replaceable. And I almost felt like I, my guard was always up around him because I knew that he was always trying to keep me on, a, on my toes, which prepared me for jobs in the future. So I can't say that it was always a negative thing, but I knew that he was one of those people that was just trying to discourage me and discourage other people from kind of living up to their greatest potential because he was unhappy with his life.
0: So knowing his weakness made you feel like you could still do it because you saw kind of the small perspective that he had.
1: Yeah, I think that if it w- was one of the bosses that I r- truly respected and they said to me, you know, you're not going to get this, I think that would have actually hurt me. But I I mean I think it just comes down to respect to be honest. That's great because I think a lot of times
0: We give people more power than they deserve. Yeah. I've cared so much about what other people think of me that I didn't respect myself. And so to flip it like that is a really, really good tool. If you don't respect the person and they don't respect you, why are you going to respect what they have to say? Yeah. That's great. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to use that next time I (laughs) encounter a hater. (laughs) You also had this incredible article in Newsweek that was followed by, you first did an Instagram post, Mm -hmm. and then you wrote a beautiful op-ed in Newsweek about your experience of sexism in this industry. And this was a quote that was in there. In my last interview with the NFL Network a few years ago, the head of hiring talent asked me, if we hire you, do you plan on getting knocked up immediately like the rest of them? So in a moment like that, how do you respond?
1: So if at that moment,
0: how yeah. did I respond? Yeah, because like, I I know how you did in the aftermath and mm-hmm. I definitely want to talk through that. But I think that so many people are in those moments of getting discriminated against and you don't know how to respond in the moment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How do you do that?
1: I think he knew in that moment based on my reaction and based on my face that this job interview was over and that I wasn't going to stand for that. And that I was a little disheartened, to be honest, that someone could be that discriminating towards women. And that was also kind of towards the middle of my career when it was more, more women on air. It wasn't, there weren't five women in the industry at that time. It was becoming more common to see a woman on television talking about sports And there were a few women at NFL Network at the time that were pregnant. And apparently it was an issue for him in terms of looks on camera, which to me was very disheartening because it told me that there are people out there that are not okay with women having it all, with having the career, with having the family that they're closed minded in a sense. And, Care more about their selfish interests, selfish interest, than allowing women opportunities to have it all. So for me, I was disheartened. I still think that I mean, I've I've encountered a lot of crazy experiences in this industry, as have a, a numerous women in this field as well as other fields. And after I came out with that post, I was receiving so many DMs. And so many stories from women about experiences they had, but they just didn't want to come out about it because they were afraid of losing their job. And I said to myself, okay, this is what I wanted was to help other women. So I felt this tremendous amount of pressure to read all of these experiences and to try and answer back with the best advice that I could give. And I don't necessarily think that a lot of them were looking for advice either. I think it was just wanting to vent and wanting to say, okay, finally, someone gets it and someone cared more about helping others than the safety of their career and the safety of their job to not say anything.
0: How did you make that decision to finally speak out?
1: For me, I I questioned, I thought about it for a while. I thought about, okay, what are the repercussions of this? And you kind of weigh your pros and cons. and finally it just got to where i said to myself okay because i was hearing stories from other women and we were all kind of just accepting that this was what we had signed up for being part of a boys club and one night i thought to myself after watching wonder woman why <laughs> i th- i feel like wonder woman impacted a lot of people in in unique ways but for me this is how it impacted me and I thought to myself, why are we just accepting this? Why have so many women before us that have been in this field and others just accepted this sort of treatment? And it was for fear that they would lose jobs was the answer that I, I was getting from women in the sports broadcasting field. And I thought, am I really so selfish and so afraid of losing my job that I've built it's taken a long time to build? Career-wise, but am I so selfish that I care more about getting a job than helping others? And when I watched Wonder Woman, it just nailed me in my heart, and I said, "You know what? Whatever's going to happen, happen." And I wrote this post, and I hit send, and I felt so empowered that I thought this this feeling of empowerment is not going to last for forever, but it made it it solidified to me that I had made the right decision. And then I went to bed and woke up the next morning. Oh my gosh, you went to bed? <laughs> and I woke up the next morning to the chaos. <laughs>
0: oh my gosh. Bold move. Sleep on it. That's amazing. I want to thank you for doing that. I, I hope to be more courageous like you. I think...
1: I feel like we all have it in us, Yeah, we do.
0: Secrets are such a burden, you know? Yeah. There's people out there listening right now who are going through something like that and empowered by what you said and what you did. And I wonder what your advice would be for somebody who is holding the burden of a secret on how to speak out.
1: I would say this is definitely – if you have a secret that you're holding in – it's definitely not something that you just say on a whim you have to really think about it and you have to think what are the repercussions will you hurt other people if you come out and say something and for me that was kind of the approach i took was okay i don't want to hurt anybody by this the man was fired and was removed so i'm not going to put a name to this because this experience has been happening to thousands of other women and i did get DMs with people saying I know exactly who it was, but that wasn't the point because if I had put a man's name on this, then it would have just been a headline about this man when there are so many other men. And by not putting a name to it, so many other people could see themselves in this particular situation and other similar situations. So I think you have to be very tactical and, kind in your approach. Because the goal is by coming out, it's to free yourself of this burden, but it's also to help other people that are going through similar experiences. So my my first advice would be to weigh kind of your options. What would happen if you were to say something? What would happen if you don't say anything? There are other people that could be going through similar things, or could it be other people that if, for example, if that man had still had his job, then think about all the other women that are just coming into this industry that don't know any different and would have to have an experience like this and think that it was normal. And so I would say that would be my my advice to anyone battling whether or not you should say something is that just weigh the pros and the cons and weigh the damage that it will do but also the people that will it will help and if the the greater if if it's if the <laughs> i'm trying to think how no, you're of- saying like
0: basically really again see from the future like yeah. as much as you possibly can for yourself like what will it feel like first of all to have that burden off of you what will who will it help if you speak out and weigh if it's worth the The possible negative repercussions for you. Yeah. And if all those things check out, then go ahead and tell your story. Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. <laughs> Where do you feel the sports uh, broadcasting industry is at now, 2019, Ooh. April?
1: <laughs> I mean... <laughs>
0: Let's get the month in there.
1: <laughs> I feel like nowadays you see more and more women getting opportunities. There's only been one or two women to attempt play-by-play. And there's still several jobs that kind of we don't see women in. I feel like more women are getting opportunities, but they're getting opportunities as this stereotypical female broadcaster, which is limited to the sidelines and the injury reports and the smaller roles, which is kind of what a lot of female actresses have been saying. Like, now we're getting more opportunities, but... It's not necessarily the opportunities that we'd like, and people are saying, "Well, well, you're getting more opportunities. Just be quiet." <laughs> but no. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say that's kind of where the sports broadcasting world is right now: is more women are getting opportunities, but we need to shatter more glass ceilings and get into that broadcast booth.
0: Right, and it's
1: it's by no means.
0: Equal. And one thing right. that was super encouraging is seeing that girl who got a football scholarship.
1: Yeah. Have you gotten to interview her yet? I haven't. You got it. I know I need yeah. to. Yeah.
0: So you've been going through some challenges health wise. And I was wondering if you might be open to speaking a little bit about what you've gone through and how it's affected your creativity and your career.
1: I would say, well, more than anything, it's affected my mental state, and my optimism. And I've had to work extra hard at remaining optimistic about it. So it all started uh, two years ago when I was this completely healthy human being. And I took an antibiotic that was just a common antibiotic that they give out at the gyno office for, I mean, anything from UTIs to kidney infections. And it was called Cipro, Ciprofloxin, And I took it and I knew immediately something was wrong. I started spinning and I thought, okay, I took it for a kidney infection. So I thought maybe if I just push through and finish the antibiotic, then it, it's the kidney infection that's making me feel this way. And I finished and the vertigo and the dizziness never went away for about a little over a year and a half. So every single day I would wake up and it hurt to be touched. It felt like I was on a boat. I had my hair was falling out. Um, I had a lot of muscle issues and I st- ha- was diagnosed with fluoroquinolone toxicity disorder by two different doctors. And so I thought, okay, at least now I know what it is. And I started to research kind of what made it worse, what made it better. There were support groups online and everybody, everybody, Sharing their experiences about what made them better and what made them worse, and I thought that also is kind of what went into my decision to come out and talk about it because I thought, wow, these people online don't realize how much they're helping other people just by sharing their their personal experiences. And so I would write down the stuff that helped people. I would write down the stuff that would to avoid. And I learned that essentially it was a dump of fluoride in my system, so I had to avoid. Uh, tap water, anything with fluoride in it. I had to avoid. uh, I'm trying to think what else I avoided. I mean, I had to change my products. I had anything that had fluoride. I had to change my toothpaste, anything with fluoride in it. I had to avoid as much as possible. And then um, I had to add magnesium into my body in order to try and pull the fluoride out. And had I not known this, I would have just continued to get sicker and sicker. And most of these people have had this for up to 10 years. I feel fortunate that I knew what to do based on their experiences and was able to get rid of it after about a year and a half, almost two years. And, but then I thought, okay, my muscles are recovering. I'm finally back to normal. And that I realized I had all these chemical sensitivities That were related to this. And after (laughs) Hurricane Harvey, they decided they were gonna spray the entire city. And I was between Houston and LA at that time. And I was there with my family during Hurricane Harvey. And after it was very controversial that they decided that they were gonna spray the entire city, the US Air Force was gonna fly over and dump all of this chemical on the city to prevent Zika and mosquitoes. And this chemical is banned in every other country, but we decided uh, as bring United it United States, yeah, bring it on. We don't need mosquitoes. We'd rather have um, other issues. So if you were pregnant during that time when they dropped it on the city, it could ha- make you have a stillbirth. For me personally, it shut down my nervous system and made me kind of back up my lymphatic system. So I couldn't sweat. I couldn't work out. I couldn't do anything. So here I had just gotten over that one illness, but I had all these chemical sensitivities, which made me more susceptible to that chemical and other chemicals as well. So Then it was a long approach of working side-by-side with my doctor in Los Angeles. I was able to get out of Houston. I moved back here permanently and did all this blood work. She found that chemical as well as others in my system, and we just started the process of trying to remove it. I finally am able to sweat, and it's just been a really rough couple years. But I think the one thing I learned through it is that – well, I've learned a lot through it, to be honest – but the one thing I've learned through it is – we never know what other people are going through because I was so scared of losing job opportunities that I hid this. And I mean, here I felt like I was on a boat every day and I'd be filming for work and no one would know that I felt like I was just going to collapse the whole time or that the camera was spinning. And I just tried to push through it because I knew if I was just sitting at home as well, not working, then that would almost make it worse, too, because then I'd have to think about it, whereas this kind of took my mind off of it. So the one thing I learned is that you never know what other people are going through. So it's made me, I feel like I've always been an empathetic person, but it's made me even more so towards other people.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure so compassionate, too. How did you push through during that time, though? Because, I mean, you said it really affected your optimism. How did you even when you were feeling terrible every day, get back to your essence and your optimism and your passion?
1: I mean, so the people that I surrounded myself with were very helpful. My boyfriend, I don't know why he's still with me after this. Well, true love, honey. (laughs) To be honest, he was very helpful in helping me stay focused. He's like, I'm not going to feed into this. I'm going to help you just think normally again. And the, the one thing I learned is that I, I, and I told you this before is that I, when I was in high school, I started to develop panic disorder and my dad had it. Um, What I didn't tell you is that when I changed my, I had it for two years and I changed my eating habits. And as soon as I changed some of the stuff I was putting in my body, my panic disorder went away and I didn't have it for years. But when my health started to decline, it came back full force. Anxiety of every sense, panic disorder, and then just I would have anxiety attacks as well. And kind of what I learned through this process is I noticed that as my health started to be on the rise, that my anxiety would start to go away. So I felt like there was a tremendous connection between mental health and physical health.
0: So what was the, I mean, obviously you said just like getting healthier really helps, Mm -hmm. but if you do have bouts of anxiety now, how do you deal with it? How do you, work through it and get to the other side?
1: Well, now I know when I, when I was first experiencing panic disorder for the first time, I think you think I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very similar to an asthma attack where you have to go outside and get air. And now I know what it is and I know it's anxiety. I also know for me personally what triggers it and what f- for the longest time, it, mine was connected to driving on a freeway. So if I was on a freeway and I would see open spaces or I'd have to go up on one of those, the the higher freeways, then I knew that that was a trigger for me. So I would just start breathing. I would try to distract my mind. I would call my friends if I felt like it was coming on and just talk about something else. Yesterday's TV show that we watched. I mean, anything to distract your mind. Um, but if you don't know the triggers, I would say the best advice is to figure out, is it triggered by something? And is there an underlying health issue that you have that you're not addressing? Are you sleeping enough? Because when I first started to get panic attacks in college, my senior year of high school, my freshman year of college were the two years that I had it. I noticed that the trigger was some of the artificial sweeteners in the candy I was eating. And also if I wouldn't get adequate sleep, it would be triggered by that. So I guess the the biggest issue is make sure that you're okay health-wise and get checked out, have blood work done to figure out if there's an underlying issue, but also figure out what triggers it.
0: Mhm. That's great advice. And I think that, you know, the mind-gut connection cannot be undervalued. Yeah. Most of our serotonin is in our gut, so got to take care of that little stomach. <laughs> it's very important. I want to talk about another really brilliant career transition you've made, which is into the investment world, and you've combined your loves, which is basically the best thing you can ever do and You work on the show now called Elevator Pitch, which I watched an episode of this morning. It is fascinating there's a literal elevator you've got sixty seconds to pitch your your idea, whatever it might be that the founders of the company pitch to you and three other investors. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how you parlayed your hosting experience into the investment world, and then we can go on from there.
1: so there was kind of a step in between uh being in l a you know that it brings a lot of interesting opportunities. I think it was maybe my New year's resolution one year to not say no to anything. and one of my when I finished the Sunday night football trip and working for them, I just needed. A vacation. So I came out to LA for two weeks. I was living in New York at the time. I came out to LA for two weeks, and one of my guy friends called me up and said, "Hey, our TV host in this movie, The Bounce Back, had pulled out. We have 24 hours to find somebody. How do you feel about acting?" And I thought, "Okay, well, I took one acting course in college. <laughs> uh, I also, my, I have the acting school when I was three years old that my mom put me in. So that was my experience." <laughs> And the only reason why I made an A in acting 101 at Auburn University was because I had a meltdown during my final monologue because I didn't have time to prepare for it. (laughs) So (laughs) I thought, "Um, if you're okay with those qualifications, then sure, I'll do it. He said, okay, okay. (laughs) Sent over the script. I ended up filming this movie and stayed in touch with everyone from that film. My executive producer, Ray Brown, said, actually, I have a friend I want to introduce you to that's working on this new project that's really unique, That's kind of has a sports component to it. It's with ePlay Digital in Canada, and it's the sports version of Pokemon Go, essentially. He said, would you be interested in in it? I know you're really big into tech. Uh, you went to a tech-based high school. I said, yeah, sure. I'd be open to it. So I set up meetings with Trevor and who was with ePlay Digital. And I got roped in and entranced by this incredible new concept and started working with them on Big Shot Basketball, which is the next version of Pokemon Go that we're about to launch and cool. in the next few months. And that led to me being more interested in augmented reality and virtual reality. And I started doing my research I hired a financial advisor who also helped me start to kind of look into where the future of investing is going. And what I found is that it was in augmented reality. And so I started investing in various uh, tech th- corporations and realized also, I don't think I'm going to be able to support a family on a broadcaster's salary for the rest of my life. So that was a big part of that is that You can do your passion all day, but then when you have to take a family into consideration, you've got to figure out a way to either bring an income in in another way and continue to do your passion or which I'm not the type of person that could give up my passion for something else. So I figured out that I would have to balance both. So I started getting more into this and I thought, okay, this is the future. This is how I'm going to make money. And but I'm still gonna do broadcasting, is a, a passion, not a passion project because it, it makes good money too, but not enough to support a, a family.
0: Right. So now you do this show. I mean, it's it's fascinating. There, um, there's four of you. I'm wondering because it is 60 seconds, and I do believe any good idea can be pitched in 60 seconds or less. But what would be your tips to creatives who have to Pitch a show, pitch an idea, pitch a business. What are the through lines to a good pitch?
1: So there's several things I look for when these entrepreneurs are giving their pitches, but one thing is passion. Here was the thing that people would say when I would come into these job interviews, oh, you're too eager. I would love to work with an entrepreneur that is too eager and that wants to moonlight all the time and work throughout the evenings on their their craft and their business. The last thing you want is someone who doesn't want to put in any effort or has another job that's too time consuming. And this idea just kind of is left on the shelf because no one can push it through. So for me, passion is a really big quality. The other thing I look for is, did someone take time to perfect this pitch? Obviously, you have nerves going into it, and especially for these entrepreneurs that aren't used to being in front of the camera. So are, is their pitch so sound that you can tell that it was well rehearsed, well put together. And that I feel like that kind of translates into how they would be as a business owner. Because if you're hardworking in one area of your life, from my experience I found you tend to be hardworking in other areas. So is their pitch polished? And I mean the show's elevator pitch. So we can't really <laughs> send somebody through if they bomb the the elevator pitch. <laughs> 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 Makes sense. I think mean, that. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say. And the other thing I look for is, oh, yeah, I mean, is it is it scalable? What is this concept that they are pitching? Is it a great idea? How many lives is it going to affect? Yeah, all good things.
0: And one other cool thing about the show, which is helpful for anybody who wants to get into business, is at the bottom of the screen when you say where it's like valuation, a definition goes across the the screen, so you're not just learning kind of what sort of ideas would pique your interest. You're also learning terminology that's so important when you're going into those situations. So I really enjoyed it.
1: I'm glad you did.
0: (laughs) I know you also are very spiritual and I'm wondering if you have a spiritual practice that has like a specific one that has helped you stay so positive and really foster the kind of success you have both, you know, as a person and as a creative.
1: I feel like for me, my, like, like you said, it's kind of everything to me and it kind of sums up for me personally, why I'm here and what my purpose is on earth. And I feel like there's something comforting for me personally, knowing that there's someone up above that is kind of orchestrating my life and my steps and, that it, it it's not all about me. It's more so I've always viewed life as a tool for God and how can I be the best representation of that? Obviously, we're all human and we all make mistakes, but I, I've also never tried to kind of push my beliefs on anybody else because I know that everybody has different beliefs or some people don't believe in a, a higher power or God. So I've always found that if I just live my life in a way that is glorifying to him in the best way possible, then people will say, okay, what is it about her that makes her optimistic? And what is it about her that makes her so content? And that would be enough witnessing on its own. I, I always find it a little, uh, it, it turns people off if you push your beliefs on other people, no matter what that is. So for me, I've just tried to live my life in a way that is helpful to others and hope that that has kind of shined a light on my faith and my relationship with God. Definitely.
0: I always say like God is goodness, you know? Yeah. So if you're putting that out into the world, then people are going to feel it. You don't need to be pounding the Bible. At yeah.
1: people.
0: <laughs> if you're good, and you see people for the loving creatures that they are and that we're just all mirrors for each other. That's a lot of God.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's beautiful. There's a, you were lucky to know your purpose at a pretty young age and it's developed over time. But I think you said you were seven when you first realized you wanted to be a broadcaster. So there's a lot of people out there who have lots of passions, but they get bogged down by, by that idea of purpose. And I wonder if you have any advice on how they can kind of go through their life and trace the lines and figure out what their purpose is as a person?
1: I would say, I mean, it it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, trying new things and figuring out. For me, it was kind of blatantly obvious after a while that this was my purpose because I kept getting hired, like Mm -hmm. you said, and I, especially at the beginning, I didn't feel like I was that great at it. (laughs) I was like, how am I continuing to get hired for these jobs where I almost felt like it was a God thing in the sense that I would get hired for these jobs and I would bomb the interviews or it almost took me completely out of the equation and showed me, okay, there's a a bigger hand on your life than just you being talented and getting these jobs on your own. I almost feel like God is able to use me even more in my career because I'm not that... (laughs) Been that great at certain things, but yet you just continue to get jobs. And conti- I feel like if it's meant to be, then it will be. Right. And I want
0: to add a caveat because I think sometimes in life there are things that you're really good at that you don't enjoy. Yeah. So yeah. you have to see is this something that brings me joy? Because if not, it might just be one of those things you're really good at and that comes easily. And maybe it's a small piece of the pie, yeah. but it's not the whole pie.
1: Yeah. For me, for me, when I was younger, writing was always the thing that I was really good at, but I didn't necessarily enjoy it, especially when I was younger. And then as I got older, I found it more therapeutic to write. And so I developed a passion for it over time, but I never made it my full-time career. I used it as a tool to build credibility in my field, but I never thought, okay, I'm just going to be a writer because that's what I'm good at. And now I see, okay, I was able to, to utilize that skill, but not make it my, my full passion and full uh, purpose.
0: Definitely. I think that's a really good note because it, it's still something you can utilize for your purpose, but it doesn't have to be your main thing just because you're good at it. Yeah. And my final questions are all about the inner child. So (laughs) prepare yourself now. I always say that I think creativity is directly linked to the inner child. And obviously you were creative from a really young age, but if the little version of you is like you standing with the little version of you in this room right Mm -hmm. now, what do you think she would say to you and why?
1: Oh my. So when I look back and watch family videos, some of the home videos my mom made. And my my boyfriend was actually watching them with me um, over Christmas break. And I was sending him clips of them. And he's like, the little you is, is like you on steroids. <laughs> he's like, she's so optimistic and full of life and just loves everyone and loves everything. And I feel like if I were looking at the little me right now, the l- little version of me would be giving me advice, not the reverse, which you would think would be the case, because over time we've learned so many lessons and we look back and we want to change things. But I feel like the younger version of me would say to myself, let go. You don't have to control everything and just enjoy life and keep in mind that your purpose is always to brighten other people's day.
0: And what do you think you would say to her?
1: (laughs) Um... That life
0: is not always that simple. (laughs) I mean, it's all true. It's not always, but in a way it is, you know. It's hard. Life is hard. There's a lot. There's like missiles coming at us all the time. We just have to figure out the way to dodge them most lovingly and to put the good out into the world and to be creative and to be kind and to put goodness out there. And you do that every day. So I feel like. Little you, while she might, you know, have high expectations, I think when she saw the full picture, she would feel that you're doing exactly what she wanted you to. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and to my guest, Lindsay McCormick. For more information on Lindsay, follow her at Lindsay McCormick Sports and on Twitter at Lindsay M underscore sports. You can also go to Lindsay dot com and see her on Entrepreneur Elevator Pitch at Entrepreneur.com. Thanks to Ashley Daniels for booking Lindsay. Follow her at Miss Ashley Daniels. Thanks to Liz Full for this show's original music. Follow her at Liz Full. Thanks to Juliette Vebert for her social media and creative help. Follow her at Bonjour Juliet. And thank you for another great week. Keep in touch at Unleash Your Inner Creative on Facebook and Instagram, and at You Are Inner Creative on Twitter. Also, I just made a Facebook group for the listeners of the show. So to find it, go to facebook.com slash unleash creative community and join. This is a place where we can go to get to know each other better, share what we're working on and ask for support. If you like what you heard, tell a friend about the show and write a review on iTunes. It makes a huge difference in helping the show grow. I'm wishing you a creative and confident week. I believe in you and we'll talk next Tuesday.